0: Knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, understanding the difference and feeling comfortable just saying, all right, I'm comfortable with other people making money in this thing that I just don't understand. If you can remove your emotions from the equation of investing, I think it makes you a stronger investor. So once you buy shares of a company, you tend to pay attention to it. You tend to watch it a bit more closely. You tend to learn a bit more about it.
1: Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, the podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me today's episode is Chris Hill. Chris was the long-time host and executive producer of the Motley Fool Money Podcast. He narrated the audiobook of Morgan Housel's international bestseller, The Psychology of Money, and is also doing his upcoming book, Same as Ever. And he has emceed dozens of live events, including the upcoming one for Horizon members on November 17th in Dublin. Before we get into the interview, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors of Vodafone Business. Vodafone have recently launched their Vhub digital advisory service offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone business customer to avail of this service. Search Vodafone Vhub to book a call with one of Vhub digital experts and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode
2: hello everyone i'd like to take one minute to tell you about a brand new my wall street service called nexus and to invite you to register your interest so you can be the first to hear about it when it launches in november as you know ai is changing all businesses and those who do not embrace it risk being left behind the product we've created fuses state-of-the-art ai advanced filtering and the intelligence of master investors for short actionable insights. There are over 58,000 listed companies on 60 exchanges around the world from which just a handful will grow 100 fold or more. Just one is required to change your life Nexus is built to find it. Had it existed at the time, Nexus would have pinpointed stocks like Monster, Sleep Number, and Biospecifics all ahead of a minimum 100 fold growth. This is a low volume product for serious long term investors. Register now via the link in the show notes or visit mywallstreet.com forward slash Nexus to express your interest.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome, Chris Hill, to Stock Club. Chris is You'll be forgiven for thinking you might have tuned into the wrong podcast because Chris was the voice for many, many years of Motley Fool Money. He's also a storied career in Motley Fool. I've given you his full rundown in the intro before this. So Chris, welcome to Stock Club. Thanks for coming on.
0: It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And you're on
1: for a very specific reason. Now we're going to talk about it a lot at the end of the show, but I just want to make sure people know that you'll be joining us in Dublin in a couple of weeks.
0: Absolutely. I can't wait.
1: Yeah, so November 17th in the Westbury Hotel, we are hosting the Horizon Annual Members Event, and for the first time ever, we're opening up to the public. So if you are interested in buying a ticket and to hear Chris emceeing with Emmett, with Bill Mann from the Motley Fool fame as well, I think you might even have to listen to me if I'm there. I'm not sure yet. Um, You can check out the show notes for today's episode, and Chris, I think it's going to be a great show from everything you've told us so far. I don't want to give away too much in this episode, but I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Uh, So am I, and and we'll talk about this in a bit, Mike. But there's, you know, we, for 15 years, I was involved in events like this at the Motley Fool, and there's nothing like investors getting together in the same room. We'll talk more about it in a bit, but that's that is my main headline thought about events like these. Like there is nothing better than getting together in a room full of investors.
1: Absolutely. So if you are one of those investors listening, lads, check it out. And you don't have to be a member of Horizon. so just check out the show notes for tickets for today's show. Okay, Chris, we're going to get into it now. And I'm really interested in your career because you've been around this industry of retail investing for so long. I think it was 1997 you started at the Motley Fool. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And you recently just finished up there. That's true?
0: In- yes. Yeah. Earlier this year.
1: Yeah, so that's a pretty storied career you've seen a lot. And I know your expertise lie in the more of the media side of things, but I'm going to kind of put you on the spot and ask for a bit of a, a kind of insight into how retail investing in particular has developed over the course of that 20 plus years and what you've seen, especially kind of,
0: we'll say on the front lines of it with the Motley Fool. So it's interesting, Mike, because you know in the early my early days at the Motley Fool, the late 1990s, the the retail investor revolution was really just getting started, and I'm glad we are no longer at this point. But in the late 90s, it was an open question; it was debated on a regular basis in the financial media. Should individuals be investing in the stock market on their own? And you know, part of what we were trying to do at the Motley Fool was to Bang the drum as loudly as possible and say, yes, actually, individuals can. And, you know, if they have the interest, if they want to, not everybody wants to, but for those who want to, you absolutely have the skill set to invest in the stock market. That was, you know, the ancient history. You know, where we've come since then, Mike, I think in general, I think the retail investing landscape has gotten bigger, it's gotten much faster the speed of information is so much faster than it was 10, 20 years ago. And part of that is social media, part of that is the uh, you know, the, the hyper-frequency trading that we see from some of the institutions. Um, but I think that while on the surface, the speed of investing in information can be a little daunting for everyday investors like you and me, hopefully if you stick in there long enough, you realize it actually provides a great opportunity for investors who can be patient. If you can think in terms of decades, not in terms of days or weeks or months, it's a huge advantage for people like you and me.
1: Mm, absolutely. And I think almost ignoring that information is the advantage, we'll say. Um, but I, the one or possibly two things, you mentioned the access to information. I'll also throw in commission-free trading on top of that as the two major kind of inflection points from, say, when Charles Charles Schwab first introduced it, and then we have Robin Hood coming in, and then there's a plethora of smaller brokers nowadays that give away commission-free trading that are all powered essentially by payment for order flow, but for individual investors, it's great. And it's, it's this new level of access to the stock market. How much do you think that has affected how the industry works now? Because it is a fairly recent phenomenon and probably is still
0: playing out. It, it is a fairly recent phenomenon although the phenomenon of commission fees going lower on a steadily basis that's been going on for 25 years i mean that's you know part of the rise of the retail investor revolution in the late 1990s was fueled by online brokerages um, you know schwab is probably the biggest one remaining but you know you can you can throw out names like e trade ameritrade uh, back in the day there was scott trade and these were these were businesses that were really undercutting the institutions on Wall Street where it would cost hundreds of dollars just to make a single trade so you had these upstart businesses coming in and saying actually you can you know we'll do trades for for $20 and then they start bidding against each other and it's like well actually it's $15 it's it's $10 it's you know it's it's $8 all that it's sort that, of thing
1: it's that race to the bottom that so many middlemen yeah. industries fall into almost
0: absolutely and i think that you know, how this has played out for the broader landscape is it actually has removed a barrier for some investors out there, you know, particularly younger investors, newer investors. You know, if you don't have, you know, if you only have a few hundred, uh, you know, bucks that you're going to try and buy a stock in, uh, it matters, even if it's just a $10 commission fee to make that trade. Um, You know, I, I think what we've seen over the last three years in particular is, uh, some newer investors really get caught up in the in the commission free trading, and maybe they're doing a bit more trading than they should. Um, you know, in early, uh, I would say mid mid twenty 2020 twenty into twenty twenty one when the market was going up. I mean that that seemed like, well, it seemed like a movie someone of my age has seen before. You know, we've we've seen these these manias before, where the market is on an amazing bull ride, and you can just Close your eyes and and throw a dart at a board and hit a stop and it's probably going to go up. Um, of course, the flip side of that is is what we saw last year in 2022, which was such a rough year for so many investors, myself included, where it doesn't matter how good the news is coming out of a given company, the you know the the stocks are going to be sold off. So I I think commission free trading, the greater access to you know free access to information. All of that has been a rising tide that has lifted the overall boat of, of retail investors.
1: Mm, I think Ben Carlson talks about this a lot. He's a really interesting writer. He says that this new access to the stock market, this universal access to the stock market, may um, may affect future returns in the sense that we're not going to see, the, what it's about 10% is kind of the historical average of the S&P 500, give or take. That that can't really be guaranteed in the future because so many people have access to the stock market now compared to if you're talking about the 40s and 50s when it was literally the top one percent or the top 0.1 percent that would have access to stock market back then. Now I'm not sure if he's right. I hope he isn't, but it, it it carries a bit of weight. Like, what do you think in terms of that?
0: Well, it's an interesting point. I you know I think that again to go back to the example I just shared, you know there are people who started out investing. And unfortunately for them, they started investing at the wrong time. It was a rough market. And so, you know, we've had probably throughout time and and certainly in the last few years, a number of people who have started investing, it didn't go well for them. And then they said, that's it. I'm out. They washed their hands of it. They're they're no longer interested in investing in the stock market. So I I, I think that it provides one counter to Ben's argument because it's not going to be a straight line up. And I, I don't, I think for a variety of reasons, we're never going to have absolutely, every, you know, there's never going to be 100% participation in the stock market. The other thing is, I, I do wonder if if we start to see a little bit of, um, I don't want to say the pendulum swinging all the way back in the other direction in terms of the the cost of trading and sort of what, what happens for individuals. But I remember four or five years ago talking with a financial planner, um, uh, at, I was at a conference Chatting with this guy, and I asked him, You know, what's your biggest challenge as a financial planner? And he immediately answered that for him, it was figuring out how to communicate with his different clients and prospective clients. There were some clients who very much wanted to talk over the phone, there were younger clients who did not want to talk on the phone at all. They just wanted to do everything by text, um, you know, and a website and a platform and that sort of thing. And so I I think that that, you know, that's one other counter to Ben Carlson's argument. You know, everybody's different. Everybody has different goals um, and different levels of comfort in terms of what they're interested in investing in. So I think that's that's always going to have an evening out effect on the market.
1: Mm, Absolutely. And uh, another one of favorite phases from Ben Carlson is we just don't know what's going to happen either. So there's no point gluing yourself to these kind of predictions okay you mentioned the manias there and the wrong times to invest so I'm going to bring that up because I think you've witnessed all three of the latest crashes um over the last 22 years we'll say uh between the dot-com bubble the great financial crisis and then the covid crash which was more like a flash crash but it did feel very real at the time do you think retail investors reactions to these kind of rapid downturns have changed over the years or is, does it follow a similar pattern?
0: Has it changed over the years? Yes and no. Uh, you know, when people start investing, has a huge impact on how they approach it. And, uh, you know, there are people who start right before a crash. Um, maybe they start six to 12 months before a crash, whether it's the late 90s or 2008, 2009. And Risk tolerance is something that we as human beings tend to overestimate when it comes to the stock market. We think we can handle a big drop and then a big drop happens. And then you find out like, well, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, it's easy to say in theory, oh, yeah, if the market fell 30%, I would sleep just as well at night. But then the market, as we've seen several times, drops 30% and then you find out what your risk tolerance is. Um, You know, I think for those who make it through, you know, as I mentioned, there are people who just, they have a bad experience and they tap out and they say, that's it. I'm never doing this again. I'm just going to stick my money in a, in a basic savings account or, you know, buy real estate or, you know, find some other investment vehicle that is not the stock market. But for those who make it through, I, I'll just speak from my own experience. It does toughen you up. It really does, you know, steal you for whenever the next crash is. I want to be very clear, Mike. It never feels good. I mean, <laughs> as experienced an investor as I am, and I've been investing for, you know, I'm, I'm now in my fourth decade of investing. 2022 didn't feel good. No. I, I well, mean, it just, it, I mean, it, it felt really bad to just we're, see. We're
1: two different poles here now. I think I'd invested for three months at the time 2022 came around, but it didn't feel good then either.
0: Yeah. I, you know, and so... It is one of those things that you have to always keep your eye on your own goals, your own time horizon, understand that we collectively as investors have been through this before. We will go through this again and again. If you've got the stomach to make it through those really rough times um, and you can invest for decades, then you will absolutely reap the rewards.
1: Hmm. I like what you mentioned there about um, your own the own game you're playing and your own timelines and everything else. And that's something Morgan Housel always espouses is that don't compare yourself to others because they're playing different games to you. If you're looking at, I don't know, Stanley Druckenmiller has just published his open positions or Warren Buffett or whoever else, and you're like, oh, well, maybe I should vest along their lines. Well, they're, they're producing very different results for de- very different people. Whereas if you have your say, investing for your retirement or whatever else, that's what it's for. It could be 40 years time, 30 years time, whatever else. So to make sure and remind yourself why you're investing is such an important exercise throughout these times and especially the times when everything is on fire and there's blood in the streets and CNBC has got big red banners on top and bottom saying everything is
0: going to pot. Along those same lines, Mike, I would just add a um... Uh, A positive development in my own investing life was when I reached, and this, this took me years to get there, but when I reached the point when I was able to look at certain areas of the market, certain investment, you know, the hot new thing, look at that thing and I was able to say, I don't understand that well enough to invest in it. And there seem to be some people who are making a lot of money in it, but I don't understand it. So I'm fine. Ignoring that part of the market. That, that was a a positive development for me because, you know, there are always those hot trends. Some of them turn out to be, um, truly transformational. Um, some of them turn out to be just passing fads and they crash and burn. Um, but I think knowing, knowing what, you know, knowing what you don't know, understanding the difference and feeling comfortable, just saying, all right, I'm just—I'm comfortable with other people making money in this thing that I just don't understand.
1: Mm, absolutely, it's a very smart man who knows what he doesn't know. Um, okay, we mentioned that you're very much on the media side of things when you're at the Malifu. So it's time for a bit of a name dropping here, first, Chris, <laughs> if you don't mind. So I assume you've done hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews between the podcast and then the live events and all the rest. Can you pick out one of your favorites and why and why it sticks out to you in your memory?
0: Um, I get asked this question a lot. It's a little, uh, as, as the father of three children, it's a little bit like being asked, you know, who's, who's your favorite child? Cause I've, <laughs> I've, been for, I've been fortunate enough to have, um, a, a lot of really positive experiences interviewing people. Um, I I'll mention a couple that stand out because these are people that I've had the opportunity to interview multiple times. Um, one is Michael Lewis. Um, okay. Known for uh, writing the, you know, The Big Short and yeah. Moneyball and Liars Poker, very um, topical right now as well. V- yes, very much uh, in the news with his latest book on um, on uh, Sam Bankman Fried. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I always take away from the conversations with Michael Lewis is how he focuses on incentives, and incentives being a through line through so many of his stories and how powerful they are. Um, uh, You know, every now and then I got the chance to um, speak to uh, university students and um, I always recommend reading The Big Short. I love the movie. I actually watched the movie again recently. I've seen it a number of times. I love the movie, The Big Short. But the book um, is so much more detailed and really gets at the herd mentality on Wall Street. That was one of my big takeaways from that book. Was just how powerful that is, and that ties into the incentives, and so it's it's one of those things that um, I always try to remember when I'm seeing one narrative making its way through the financial media, and and just sort of how you know how much that herd mentality continues to this day. Um, two other people that I'll mention uh, are both um, uh, anchors on CNBC, and that's Becky Quick and Carl Quintanilla, and I've interviewed both of them. Uh, you know, probably a dozen times each, and you know the thing I get from from Becky and Carl, they are, first of all, just as as someone who who worked on the media side, uh, I'm I'm so impressed by them as individuals, as you know how smart they are, how hard they work, how thorough they are in their research, but also because they are first and foremost journalists, which I am not, um, but they are journalists, and so when i watch them particularly when they're doing one-on-one interviews and they're both so good at that i think they both do such an amazing job of taking their emotions out of the equation they really try to be you know have that distance that a journalist should have and i think that um that's such a great lesson for all of us as investors you know to the extent possible if you can remove your emotions whether they're positive or negative If you can remove your emotions from the equation of investing, I think it makes you a stronger investor.
1: Absolutely. I find it very interesting that you picked out people that are kind of revolving in similar circles. You have a writer and then two
0: interviewers
1: coming up straight away. I don't think that's an accident. Definitely not. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, now I'm going to flip it. And can you remember, and I'd say you probably can, one of the worst interviews that you've done for whatever reason.
0: I would say um, many of the interviews I did early in the podcast. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think back to 2009, 2010, and I just wasn't that good at interviewing people. I was, uh, I would write out my questions. I would be very focused on my questions. I wouldn't really be listening to whoever I was interviewing. I was just doing that thing where you wait for them to stop talking, and then I would just move on. And you know that. You know, I, I finally figured out like, no, I, I need to be better prepared, you know, and, and it really it really did inform my work ethic, you know, I would say from 2010 on to to make it my goal every time I went into the studio or anytime I was getting ready to interview someone. My goal was I want to be as prepared as possible. I want to do all the research and study necessary so that when we start the conversation, I can be 100% focused on listening to them. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was, there was never, there was never an interview where it's like, that was a bad interview because the person I was interviewing was bad. No, yeah. they were bad because I was not good at my job.
1: <laughs> you have no, um, you have no Bill Mann, Elon Musk moment in your, in your repertoire. <laughs>
0: Um, no, nothing, nothing <laughs> quite like that. I was in the room for that. And it was, it was sort of a breast moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for, for anyone who wants the full details of that story as well, Bill Mann is going to be at our Dublin event on the 17th of November. So you can get your tickets in the show notes. I was up for a plug right there.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> okay. One last question now on the interviews, and this is putting you on the spot, a small bit, but, um, I want to know if you could go back and ask one guest and a question now knowing what you know now could you come up with something like that go back to Michael Lewis and maybe tell him to, to maybe skip Sam Bankman Fried and go for someone else
0: yeah yeah it's you know um, I think that when I think about sort of the the interviews that that industry the most I've, I've interviewed CEOs from time to time um, and uh, you know depending on the CEO that can be a really fun conversation but, um, CEO, I don't begrudge CEOs this, but CEOs are part of their job is to be political. It's not their job to to make news and to be as interesting as possible, which is which is why I'm more interested in. I've always been more interested in in talking with analysts and talking with um, people in the financial media because they're more free to share their opinions. Um, I think if I could, you know, go back, um, I, I one of the few. CEO interviews I had the chance to do was in 2009 and it was with Jim Sinegal, the, um, the, the co-founder and, and former CEO of Costco. Um, and I think I would probably try and push him a bit more on, you know, I remember asking him about um, his succession plan. And by the way, that's a tricky thing to ask because you're basically asking someone, <laughs> A who's really good at their job, and two who's getting up there in years. Yeah, I was about
1: to like, say you're uh, kind of pointing at that, your wrist. Clicking yeah, the watch. underlying
0: that question is essentially, hey, when are you going to retire? Um, <laughs> so, but I did sort of you know broach that topic with him because it it had come up in the media, and and I, I felt like I was sort of on on relatively solid ground there, um, and you know now with the benefit of hindsight, and you know basically what Senegal said was. Um, we've, you know, basically said, when the time comes, we're going to have the next CEO. Like he didn't, like he wasn't going to name any names. He wasn't going to speculate. It was the only part of the conversation where he got just a little bit prickly. And I don't blame him for that. But he basically said, you know, when the time comes, don't worry. We'll let you know. We'll take care of it. Well, now with the benefit of hindsight, Mike, we know that the person that he had in mind was Craig Jelinek a longtime Costco employee. And if you're a Costco shareholder, as highly as you regard Jim Cynical, the returns for Costco under Craig Jelinek as CEO have crushed the returns under Jim Cynical. And so I, I think if I went back in time, I would ask him maybe a follow-up question of, of you know, what do you think success looks like for the next CEO, does it look, you know, in terms of stock market returns, does it look like what you've done? Um, because it it really is incredible that that business, which is basically the same business it was when Senegal was running it, it's amazing how that stock has performed.
1: Mm, there's some parallels there with Apple as well, where you have the founding CEO and the big personality, and then Tim Cook came in and his returns since he's been involved. I know he bought back maybe a quarter of the company and share buybacks, but that efficient, the efficiency and the the non-flashiness of Tim Cook came back in. He did a lot of very smart financial moves. He moved into services and all the rest. It, it's not sexy like Steve Jobs coming out with an iPod on stage and the black turtleneck, but it's actually more efficient for shareholders because no, they're building a- on top of such strong foundations as well.
0: It's a great point, Mike, and I would encourage anyone listening, don't take our word for it. Go back. to Look up online and look at what the the business media coverage of the torch being passed to Tim Cook was like. It was essentially, boy, does this guy have not just big shoes to fill, he has arguably the biggest shoes in the history of business to fill. And no one, no one was predicting the kind of returns for Apple under Tim Cook as CEO, particularly in the wake of the amazing returns that stock had under Steve Jobs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to cut in here real quick just to plug our newsletter. So if you like listening to us, you're going to love reading from us. We are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we cover with Charging and Fairness, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or somewhere in between. So that's completely free stock, which every, every week, you'll have a red in about 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. So sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay. Um, Chris, I'm going to give you a bit of a quiz now. Obviously, you've been at the Motley Fool for, you were at the Motley Fool for 25 years, maybe, give or take, not to give away your age there. 26 years, yep. 26. I'm like, I'm like you now, ticking on, ticking on the watch here. <laughs> <laughs> But can you recall some of the best, most outrageous best performance stock picks from back in the day and, and kind of the, the success that they brought, I suppose, you
0: know? So, you know, in thinking about, you know, and for the, for those who might be unfamiliar, Motley Fool Money is a a podcast that we started at the Motley Fool in early 2009. It started as a weekly show. It is now a daily show. And, uh, one of the longest running podcasts um, when it comes to business and investing, and mm. most of the time it is it was me talking with Motley Fool analysts about what's happening in the news and and uh, and sort of getting their take on it. And you know, uh, there's not a, a single call that comes to mind. What does come to mind, Mike, is um, over the years, and and I'm talking about you know, and and for those who are familiar, the, these names will be familiar, people like. Uh, Jason Moser, Bill Mann, Andy Cross, Matt Artisinger, Ron Gross, Bill Barker. There were all multiple occasions when we were in the studio and one of them would be talking about a stock. Sometimes it was a well-known business. Sometimes it was a business that was a little under the radar. Um, but I think the the common thread uh, for these comments and analysis from these people was that it was essentially about valuation. There were so many times when these analysts were saying, this business right here is trading at a low valuation. In some cases, it's, wow, I'm kind of surprised that this well-known business that is profitable is basically priced for zero growth. And I think anyone listening might want to take a closer look at it. Um, You know, one specific example is in the early days of Motley Fool Money, Ron Gross talking about Domino's Pizza, which was at the time trading for uh, single digits. It was less, I'm pretty sure it was less than $10 a share. And they were, you know, they had a new CEO, they were going through their whole um, PR campaign about admitting our pizza is not very good, (laughs) which I, you know, which was, you know, a a master stroke. I thought by, uh, by Patrick Doyle, who was the CEO at the time and his team. And, you know, Ron was the one saying, boy, this is a, I don't know. I, I get that the pizza isn't very good and I get that the business is struggling, but Holy cow, again, going back to the valuation, Holy cow, this looks like a really attractive offer. Um, you know, and that's, that's something that slowly over time I was able to pick up on in my own investing life, and sort of, you know, because I'm I'm not necessarily someone who looks at valuation first, but there there have been times where I have looked at stocks and added them to my own portfolio because of that very reason. Where it's like, wow, you're gonna sell me this stock at that. You know, the the most recent example, and and maybe my only bright spot of 2022 <laughs> was um, was last year when Nike. Shares of, Nike came out with an earnings report, I think in the middle of 2022, the stock fell 25%. And I did, you know, Nike was one of those stocks I'd had on my watch list for a bunch of years. I'd never, and I just thought, boy, that really seems like an overreaction. And it looks like this thing is on sale right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to mention there, I've been looking at similarly at Zoom for a strange reason. I think it was priced at almost 11 times uh, enterprise value to free cash flow or something like something nuts like that for forward free cash flow. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Is it a business in decline or whatever else, you know, is it becoming commoditized? And then I just had a Google Meet uh, yesterday. And I've never been more motivated to buy shares than after being in a Google Meet for an hour. Oh, it was awful. We had echoes, we had, you know, when there's three people's face on three, that three versions of one face on the screen and everything else. So, yeah. It is yeah, interesting, j- especially when we talk about long-term investing, valuation probably isn't the top of the list, but it plays such an important role at the same time.
0: Well, and and something else that, you know, um, Jason Moser in particular, but, but you know, the other people I mentioned have, have made this point as well is, you know, one of the great things about being a stock investor is you don't have to start with a lot of money and you don't have to start a position with a lot of money. You can, you know, Jason Moser talks all the time about buying in thirds, you know, so you can start out with a position in Zoom and just say, all right, this, you know, I have more money to put to work, but I'm just going to take a small chunk of it. I'm just going to see. And, you know, I this has been my experience. I'm sure it's been the experience of, of your listeners as well, Mike, that, you know, once you buy shares of a company, you tend to pay attention to it. You tend to watch it a bit more closely. You tend to learn a bit more about it. Um, and particularly if you start out with a small position, um, you know there's only so much damage you can do.
1: Absolutely, the skin in the game is very important. Hmm. And what's uh, I think it is a Jason Moser phrase as well. It's uh, I'm I'm going to butcher it now. It's um, if it doesn't work out, it's only a small loss, and if it does, that's you know a small bit is all I need. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're moving on to your acting career now. <laughs> um if if we'll call it that so you voiced Morgan Housel's audiobook The Psychology of Money which is an international bestseller i think it's all, it's sold all over a million copies has not it um the uh,
0: the, the book, book. In, all, in all its formats has sold over 3 million copies worldwide
1: the, there you go
0: so you you are the
1: voice of that which i think is a great role to be in and especially for a writer like Morgan who what i love about him is he he puts such complex thoughts and ideas into the most simplest examples, whether real life or analogies and all the rest. So I think it's great to to be a part of that process, even if it is, you know, you're not doing the writing, you're doing the reading out, but but how how did that come about? And what's been, been your experience like with the audiobooks?
0: So I was one of the people in Morgan Housel's life um, I, have known Morgan since 2008 and, um, you know, he's a great guy. We've been friends a long time. And I was one of the people in his life encouraging him to write a book and somewhere along the way, uh, which by the way, that's easy for me to say, I'm not writing the book, but you know, it's always <laughs> easy to, just yeah, go ahead, sit down write, write a book. Yeah, you should have, you um, should
1: have invested. You say, I'll buy a page of this book.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, somewhere along the way, I, you know, when he was sort of talking through the different challenges of writing a book and, and mentioned audiobooks, I just, you know, brushed that aside and said, "Well, I'll do it for you. Don't worry about that. I'll, I'll, I'll do the audiobook for you." And then in early 2020, he called me on the phone and said, "I've got the first, you know, draft copies of the book. Um, What's your address? I need to drop one off so you can start prepping for the audiobook." <laughs> And and uh, I gave him my address, and then I went straight to my laptop and I opened up Google. And Mike, I, I literally typed into Google, "How do you narrate an audio Because <laughs> I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in a studio, but it's a very different process to oh,
1: narrate an
0: audio book. So I'd say your your first draft was in an English accent or something. Yeah. So I, um, you know, but but ultimately, I just, once I got the book and started reading it. Then I, then I started thinking, oh my gosh, this book is great. I can't let him down. This can't be a situation where people are, you know, are writing on audible. Well, the book is great, but the narrator's terrible. So, <laughs> so, you know, I can't recommend this. So I, I spent a lot of time reading it. I, they sent me a PDF. I sp- I went through it line by line to sort of highlight different parts of it. So that when I went in the studio, I was as prepared as possible, um, You know, so in in general, you know, when someone asks what is the process, it's for me, it's spending hours and hours and hours of time preparing before I go in the studio.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Same with interviews and same with everything else we've been talking about. That preparation is the real savior, you know?
0: Absolutely. And it's just it's all about just, you know, uh, the more comfortable you are in the studio, the better you're going to do, whether you're conducting an interview or or narrating an audio book or something else.
1: Yeah. And it obviously went well because you're narrating the follow-up. Uh, so that's coming out, it's coming out next
0: month, isn't it? November 7th. Uh, yeah. Morgan's follow-up book, same as ever comes out November 7th. And, uh, yes, I, I did the, I did the audio book for this one as well. And, um, and fortunately I didn't have to Google, how do you narrate an audio book? <laughs> Cause I had had the experience once before. Have you, uh,
1: have you ever heard the story about, uh, Francis Ford Coppola? Um he wrote the he didn't write The Godfather, he directed The Godfather. Who wrote The Godfather? I'm giving myself away now. Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather, sorry. And then he had to write the screenplay for The Godfather 2, was it? And he bought a he bought a book on how to write a screenplay and it was just read The Godfather One screenplay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So I feel like that's going to be it. So I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but do you have any spoilers for uh, same as ever?
0: I'll say a couple of things about same as ever. Um, you know, I, a couple of people have asked me, what, you know, what's how, how is same as ever different from the psychology of money? To me, the psychology of money was a book that says, among other things, being a good investor has a lot to do with behavior. So let's talk about your behavior. One thing that I think about same as ever is it's a book that essentially says, now that we've talked about your behavior, let's look at how we as human beings have behaved for hundreds of years. And it's really about the things that never change. Um, You know, one of the quotes that Morgan has early in the book is from Jeff Bezos. Um, You know, Bezos talking about how often he is asked the question about, you know, what's going to change in the next 10 years. And by the way, That's a perfectly reasonable question for us as human beings, for us as investors. We always want to know, okay, this is interesting. This is good. What's next? What's the next version of this? But Bezos goes on to say, I almost never get the question, what's not going to change in the next 10 years? And I actually think that's the more important question. Um, So it's really um, a, a, a series of um eye-opening lessons that I think, you know, both for us as human beings just in our everyday lives, but in particular about our investing lives. Um, I I really think same as ever is gonna resonate with a lot of people.
1: Mm, I'm really looking forward to it. I was gonna say I'm really looking forward to reading it, but now I'm gonna have to listen to it, I think, after this. (laughs) Right. Um one last question now and then we're gonna get finished up here. And that's around our live show on the November seventeenth in Dublin. So you've You've manned a fair amount of these in your time at the Motley Fool. How are you looking forward to your first Dublin show, and what do you have in store for us? Without giving too much away, not dissimilar to to Morgan House's book. You know, we got to keep them keep them on the line here.
0: Absolutely, uh, I'm so looking forward to this event. As I said, I've, you know, I've I've done uh, dozens of events like this in my time at the Motley Fool. And look, I I love podcasts. I love um, reading. Um, you know there are a lot of different ways to get information as an investor, but for my money, nothing compares to events like this, um, because uh, you get that that interaction that you cannot replace with um, uh, texting on a phone or even over Zoom or something like that. Um, there's nothing like investors getting together in the same room talking about stocks, um, because that's that's the thing about investing is For as many people as there are investing, and there are certainly a lot more than there were 25 years ago, um, it is still a pretty solitary endeavor. Um, You know, I don't know about you, Mike, but I don't have a lot of friends who are really into stock investing. Um, I'm the only person in my immediate family who's really into stock investing. So getting the chance to meet up with like-minded investors is something I always jump at. Um, So... In terms of a a little bit of a preview without giving too much away, um, one of the things we're going to be talking about is stock investing opportunities in 2024. Um, We're going to be talking about industries that investors should be keeping an eye on. Um, Certainly 2023 has been a better year than 2022, but that's a pretty low bar to clear. Um, And I think that there are some industries that are poised to do even better in 2024 than they did this year. Um, And we're going to be talking about stocks, we're going to be talking about individual companies. Um, stocks that uh, investors are going to want to keep their eyes on. Again, uh, you know, some will certainly fall into the category that we were talking about earlier in terms of valuation, that here's a strong business and the price of the stock does not reflect how strong the underlying business is.
1: Absolutely. So if you are an investor and you find yourself in Dublin on Friday, November the 17th, please give us a call. Uh, We have the link in the show notes for all the full details, but it's going to be a great event for networking, to find stock picks, to just listen to Bill Manziel on Must Story, whatever else. So I'm really looking forward to I'm really looking forward to hearing from you there, Chris. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great meetup and it's just going to be a great night. I think there's even free booze. So at the very least, you'll get fed and watered. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Before we finish up, actually, sorry, I just have to give a shout out to our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. So Vodafone have recently launched their V-Hub digital advisory service offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone business customer to avail of this service. So search Vodafone V-Hub to book a call with one of the V-Hub digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes as well. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. As always, it's great to hear from you and your experience, and I can't wait to do it in person in a couple of weeks.
0: Mike, it was my pleasure, and like you, I can't wait to get together on the 17th.
1: Okay, we'll see you then. All right, remember, folks, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. Leave us a review, send us on to your friends, and we will talk to you next week we mm-hmm.